Well, we're in the midst of a paradigm shift, and the paradigm shift for some people is that we are moving from the idea that the church gathers on Sunday morning and then we do the rest of our week the way that we want uh, to now this gathering on Sunday morning is the assembly and the rah-rah time where we get built up as the body of Christ, as fellow ministers, and we get commissioned every Sunday to continue to do our full-time ministry, which is being doctors, it's being lawyers, it's being secretaries, it's being nurses, it's being working in the oil and gas, it's working in all these different occupations, commissioned to go out just like that video. A couple weeks ago, I was in the equip class, and I heard Pat uh, speak on uh, some things about evangelism and our impact in the workplace. And he shared something about evangelism, and I wanted him to share that. And by the way, the equip class begins again today, so this is kind of a good segue to let you know that. But I wanted him to share this because some of us, when we think of evangelism, we, we kind of have this uh, negative connotation in our mind, and I want this to change your, your thought process. Pat? Uh, I was leading a manufacturing operation for a company, and I was in charge of our maintenance personnel, and we found out that after about three years, we had a maintenance man that had been stealing from us, and uh, parts and motors and all kinds of things. We caught him red-handed, we terminated him, and then, lo and behold, uh, six months later, we find ourselves in a wrongful termination lawsuit, an ambulance-chasing attorney, one of these manipulative kind of guys, got a hold of our guy, and now we're in a lawsuit, and I was asked to testify in this lawsuit. So as I'm preparing to testify, we've got this guy dead to rights, and I'm perfectly confident in our case, and yet our attorney asked me, says, Pat, how do you feel uh, before you go on the stand? I said, I'm really, really nervous. He said, why is that? I said, because I'm afraid that I'm gonna mess this testimony up somehow. I'm afraid that this other attorney who had a real reputation for twisting things around, I'm afraid this guy's gonna twist my words, he's gonna twist the question, and he's gonna somehow, I'm gonna somehow blow our case and we're going to lose because of my testimony. And our attorney said to me, he says, Pat, let me just get things real clear for you. Your job is to simply be a witness. Your job is to say what you have seen and heard and know to be true. It is not your job to win this case. He says, I'm the advocate. It's my job to win the case. Now, as a believer, that had a really powerful impact on me because he said, it's just your job to be a witness. Just simply say what you've seen and heard and know to be true and step away. I'll win the case. I'm the advocate, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, it is, it's, it's the Lord's job to bring people to himself. It's not our job to win them. It's his job to win them. It's our job simply to be a witness, to tell what we've seen and heard and know to be true. Thanks, Pat. I appreciate that. This morning, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The title of our message is Making Known the Brilliance of God. I want us to think about, you and I as the church, how we make known the brilliance of God. And yes, it does tie in with this idea of evangelism. Now, my friends, when we see evangelism as our duty, all of a sudden it becomes about us. It becomes man-centered. But when we see it as an overflow or an outflow of our lives and the God working through us, then it becomes about God. It becomes about the, the people that need to hear about Christ. 
Now, I know for some of us, the word evangelism is synonymous with duty, fear, obligation, dread, or I can't publicly speak. But I want you to know that when we have a proper understanding of representing God, then we no longer think of evangelism in those words. In fact, we start to realize that evangelism is as natural and as easy as breathing. Every single one of us are witnesses for Christ when we wake up and we live out a spirit-filled life, one of integrity. Last week, I talked about the tools that God has given us. He's given us everything we need. He's given you a story. Now, that story is even more profound when you understand that you're a priest of God that you are a minister, that you use that every day in your office place, that you're going as an advocate for the Father to the people that you represent. And when you add on to that the fact that you have gifts that complement your abilities and you start using your spiritual gifts in the workplace as well as the church, and you are living out a spirit-filled life, my friends, people are going to ask you, they're going to want to know what gives with you, what's different about you. And that's the boldness of our witness. Here are some old people that have talked about uh, evangelism. And just because they're old and some of them are gone, it doesn't mean what they've said isn't profound. Uh, Robert Munger once said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus died for sinners. Can we not live for them? Anthony Pappas said, churches that have lost their heart for evangelism are living out their final chapter. Curry R. Blake said, if your gospel isn't touching others, it hasn't touched you. Rebecca Piper said, being an extrovert isn't essential to evangelism. Obedience and love are. Billy Graham, who I think has a few things to say about evangelism, said, The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and helpless. David Jeremiah said, The only way the church will fulfill the mission of Christ is for Christians to have a vision for fulfilling the mission personally. C.S. Lewis said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. God became man for no other purpose. And of course, the best quote is last. Jesus himself said this, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I command you. This is what we are to do. As we go into Ephesians chapter 3 and as we're preparing our hearts for communion in a little bit, let's ask God to really do something in our hearts. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see Paul's job of making known God's grace and our job of making known the brilliance of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to stir our hearts. Help us to see exactly what we are to be and help us to be the people of God that represent you and make you known. In Christ's name, amen. Let's take a look at what Paul had to say about his job of making known God's grace. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Paul is talking. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. 
to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, as grace was given. We'll stop right there. Paul, as he is speaking, he starts off by saying, of this gospel, I was made a minister. That word minister is the same word that we get servant or deacon, diakonos in the Greek. It means a person that is willfully giving themselves. It's not a slave who is subjugated. No, it is a person who willfully goes and cheerfully waits on tables in a sense and is a, a servant of someone else. And Paul is saying, I'm a servant of the gospel. I'm a servant of the good news and it is my privilege to be able to do this because I've been touched by the power of God. And I think he's referring back to his Damascus Road experience where God miraculously touched him. How many of you have been miraculously touched by God? So we are in good company here. Paul felt this deep appreciation for the fact that God touched his life. He goes on. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. Why does he say that? Was he just being humble? Was it, was it a false humility? No, I think that there was a realization of Paul of how deeply grievous his life was before Christ. He was in touch with the fact that his sin affected many people. His sin gave the approval of the stoning of Stephen. His sin allowed people, believers, to be dragged out of their houses and persecuted and killed. Paul realized that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy, he said, here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Do you have an understanding of how grievous your sin was before God when you, before you gave your life to Christ? When we understand that, we come to God in humility and say, okay, God, what you can do, what can you do with this individual? There is such a deep appreciation. There will be an urgency about being your representative. And I got to tell you, sometimes in the church, many believers, they have a lackadaisical attitude in regards to just serving God, you know, kind of flippant. We need to get a greater appreciation for what God has done for us because it was the motive for Paul. We move on in the passage, and Paul gives two responsibilities he has. In verse 8, he says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We'll look at the second phrase in verse 9 in a minute, but let's tear that apart. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable is an incredible word. The word unsearchable means untraceable. What he is saying is that in Christ there are untraceable, unfathomable, un, uh, uh, undescribable type of attributes and blessings that came when we received Christ. Humans can we can barely full, we can barely understand all the riches that we have in Christ. 
We begin to understand them when we give our life to Christ and he starts to unfold them. We would no, no sooner search all the depth, deep, dark corners of the ocean before we would completely comprehend all that we have in Christ. But when we give our life to Christ, just as with Apostle Paul, the blessings of God, the blessings of Christ, of what he does, starts to unfold in our life. All of a sudden, we realize that we have the capability of forgiving another individual. All of a sudden, we have the ability to bear with one another when the other one is not too bearable. We have those times, don't we? We start to understand that we can get freedom from our addictions. We have this ability in Christ, under the power of Christ, to go from a sinner to now a saint. All of these things start to unfold because they're packaged up, bundled up in the riches of Christ. And Paul says this, he says, I get the chance to preach to the Gentiles these unsearchable riches of Christ. You sense that there is an incredible responsibility. There is an urgency to Paul that he wanted to do this. If you look in other passages, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Yet when I preach the gospel, I can't boast. I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Acts 20, 24, Paul says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Can you imagine saying that? Nothing to me. If only I might finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me to the task of testifying of the gospel of God's grace. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you sense the, the responsibility that Paul has for the gospel? Verse 9 gives us the second aspect of his job. He says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Now the word plan here goes back to what we talked about last week. It is the same word for stewardship. Remember, the stewardship was, in a sense, the blueprint that God had given the apostle Paul. And Paul is simply saying there is a, an urgency to carry this plan out. Now, remember, the mystery, as we defined it last week, we understand it's the church. And it's still, and again, he mentions that it's previously unknown. It is a mystery. It was not known in the Old Testament. Now, here's my question. Why did God keep this idea of the church, this idea of this mystery, away from the Old Testament saints? Why did he do it? Well, if you study the Old Testament, you realize that God had a heart for the Gentiles. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. We see prophecies where he talks about they were to be a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish nation was to do that. But it didn't happen because the Jews hated the Gentiles. So how, why did he keep it, why did he keep it secret? Because it could only be realized in the riches of Christ. See, it was only through the plan of the Redeemer, the Messiah, when he would come, that reconciliation could come and take place. Because really, the mystery was the Jew and the Gentile would worship together. Do you understand how radical this was for those at this time reading this kind of a letter? 
Jew, Gentile, worship together under one head, no barrier between us. This is incredible. The only way I can equate it would be to have a Ku Klux Klan member and an African American worshiping together hand in hand and worshiping the same God and loving each other. And you'd say, why? That would be crazy. Yes, this is the kind of craziness that took place here because this is what Jesus brings. He brings enemies together. And this is what Paul says, I get to bring uh, and make this known. Now, what do we learn from the Apostle Paul? We learn that Paul had a job to do to make known God's grace. And he did so with passion, he did so with urgency, and he did so with love. And my friends, I hope that we would learn from that example at Mission View. That we would have the same kind of urgency, the same kind of passion, and the same kind of love to treat the, our responsibility of giving that grace away. But Paul goes on and he transitions and he gives a specific responsibility to the church. Look at this in verse 10. He says this, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to come back to this verse. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I have suffered for you, which is your glory. Now going back to verse 10, Paul makes a shift. Paul goes from his responsibility to now talking about this, the responsibility of the mystery, of the church, what is our responsibility? Now look at what he says here. So that through the church, underscore the manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now my friends, this is probably one of the most profound verses in the book of Ephesians. Let's break it apart. He says the manifold wisdom. The church's job is to make known the manifold wisdom. The word manifold means variegated. It means multi-rich colors. Years ago, my family was going out to color, uh, going out west, and when we were going through the boring part of Colorado, we finally got, because I didn't even realize there was a boring part of Colorado, but we went through the flat, boring part, and then all of a sudden we come to these mountain ranges. And one mountain range after another, it was a time of the year where all the flowers were in bloom, and as far as the eye could see, you could just see rolling mountains of flowers. And we got out of the car, and you just saw all the richness of the colors and the smells that came from the fresh air and smelling the flowers. And you saw that richness. You could not soak it in. This is the kind of multicolored, faceted, uh, facet nature of God's wisdom there is. You can't even begin to soak it in. You can only stand in awe of amazement of God's wisdom, of God's incredible brilliance. Now take, a note, of, uh, take note of this. Notice what he says. Here's the kicker. The church... The church is the vehicle by which God is demonstrating the multifaceted brilliance of God. The church, you and I, 
We are the ones that are showing the brilliance of God. Now, Paul uses the phrase that we're doing it to the rulers and authorities. This is who the lesson's being taught to. He says, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what's interesting is Paul uses this phrase in other places in Ephesians. He is talking about the spiritual world, both demonic and angelic. So what, put it together here. Paul is using this phrase, and what he is saying is the church is the university. The church is the university, and the students are the angelic worlds, the angels, and the demons. And guess who the professors are? You and me as the body of Christ. You and me as the body of Christ. So here's the question. What lesson are we really teaching the spiritual world? What is God doing to use this church, this, the people in the church, to teach the angels and demons a lesson? Here's what he's teaching. He is teaching that God's grace brings a divided world together. Think about that. In the Old Testament, they didn't know that. We saw friction between husband and wife, Adam and Eve. We saw friction between brother and brother, Cain and Abel. We saw friction between a people and their creator throughout the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, you kind of get a depressed feeling after a while, don't you? It's because it's a history of disobedience. It's a history of division. And I want you to know outside of Christ, there is nothing but division. There is destruction. There is turmoil. But packaged up in the richness of Christ comes the ability for restoration, for reconciliation, for there to be harmony. It becomes possible. And guess what? Now in Christ, the angelic world is looking upon us and learning a lesson from us. Now we know that the angels are interested. First Peter says that the angels wanted to know about salvation. The fact is, angels and demons, including Satan, they're not all-knowing. Did you know that? They can't read your mind. They can't do that. Satan can't read your mind. He's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. But here's what they can do. They can, they can't read our minds, but they can observe our lives. Why is it that angels rejoice when a sinner repents? Because they can hear their words of repentance. They can see the life change in them. Why is it that demons believe and shudder, according to James chapter 1? Because they can see the work of God that is demonstrated in the people of God who have faith in God. My friends, we are on display. We show the brilliance and the magnificence of God every single day. Now, I know some of you are going to say, I have a little problem here, Steve. The church seems a little screwed up. Have you ever watched TV, church? Man, it's screwy. I am telling you it's screwed up. And you say, well, well Steve, is, is the church, if it's displaying this brilliance, is it screwed up? My friends, the church isn't screwed up. The people are screwed up. People are. And we have a choice. You see, the, the church, look at it as a vehicle. This vehicle can show the brilliance of God. 
And when we operate as God instructs us, when we live in sacrificial obedience, when we allow God's transformation to take place, when we allow forgiveness to take place, when we allow the fruits of the Spirit to flow through us, then the brilliance of God is on display. But when we as human beings make choices to walk away from God and do things our own way, when we get away from God's word and do it according to our own logic, when we start holding bitterness in our hearts, when we start living out our flesh-centered appetites, then our man-centered worship is on display. And I want you to know the angelic world knows the difference between the fake and the true. They absolutely do. Case in point, I was reading in Acts this week. It was kind of, uh, kind of funny. In Acts 19, Paul had been doing all kinds of miracles. Some jealous Jews were like, oh, I'm going to do that. And they start casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demons respond. They say, um, Paul I know, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Who are you? So my question for us today in this university of the church and with us being the professors is that what is your life specifically teaching the angels? And do they see real or do they see fake? We have the chance of making known the brilliance of God. Paul goes on in the latter verses and he is saying that this truth was God's purpose from the according his eternal purpose. It was his plan to be realized when Jesus Christ would appear. And he says that being in Jesus is the key for this to happen. Take a look at what he says in verse uh, 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we realize who we are in Christ, then we can have boldness, we can have access, and we have no fear. And Paul says, hey, my chains are an example. I have no fear. You shouldn't be upset. There's going to be trouble in this life. But I have Christ as my rock. He is my redeemer. My friends, as we think about giving off the brilliance or making known the brilliance of God, I want us to think about it in terms of our personal responsibility. Philippians 1 says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. 2 Timothy says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but join in the suffering. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are in his ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Four ways, four ways I want to challenge us before we go to communion. Number one, personally see yourself as a minister in your workplace, utilizing the giftedness. I give you one tool you can use, and that is prayer. In your workplace, first of all, bolt your name to God. That's a Pat-ism. Pat, uh, Pat Culpepper, I stole it from him. He probably stole it from somebody else. That's okay. Bolt your name to God. Let people know, I am a Christ follower, and I love to pray, and I want to know how I can pray for you. Now, people might turn down an invitation to lunch knowing that you're going to preach at them, but very seldom do people turn down prayer because people have a lot of needs. And then after you ask how you can pray, actually pray for them, log it down, and then follow it up, and believe me, in time there will be spiritual conversations that will come as a result of that. 
So that's personally how we can make known the brilliance of God. Second, as a church, we have a responsibility to make known the brilliance of God, and we will continue to do it by making disciples and seeing churches planted. We will do this either by partnerships or by what we do ourselves. And our hope is that in the future, we will plant churches ourselves. If you're going to look on the map here, you're going to see where all of our people exist. All of our people are the red dots that currently, this is Mission View right now. And the blue dots are going to be all of the community groups that exist. Now, think through the future. As God grows this ministry, there's going to be more red dots and there's going to be more blue dots. And as God continues to do that, there's going to be pockets of people where we can plant churches in other communities to reach those communities. And our hope is that we can continue to send out churches because we believe it's the way that we make known the brilliance of God. We hope to do so in partnership with other churches. I've been building a relationship with Ryan Johnson from the chapel in North Canton. Been building a relationship with Brandon Connor from New Point and with Jason Lance, who will be the lead pastor at River Tree. We are to do that. Number three, we're to partner with regional church plants, just like with uh, Robert Rodriguez, just like with this church in Chicago, with Aaron Youngren. We want to follow the leading of the Lord. And that's my job as your pastor to constantly put before you the church plants that we're going to continue to partner with because we're not a collective community. When we take offerings, it's not for us. When we take offerings, yes, there's some base work that we have to pay for and take care of, like the rental of this facility. But what we want to do is we want to be a distributing community. We're not hoarding it in. We want to help in advancing the work of the gospel. I know for some people it takes trust for that to happen. And it's, I hope you will begin to have that trust because that's our intention. We're firm on that. And number four, we will continue to, to the uttermost parts of the world to unreached people groups. My friends, unreached people groups are very much on my heart. As your pastor, I feel like we need to do that. So how do we do it? In bite-sized pieces. This coming year, this year, we're going to engage in two, compassion, uh, two works. One is a compassion slash church planning work in northern Thailand. The other one is in Turkey. And you'll learn more about those in the next couple weeks. But we're hoping to participate in them and take teams of people over in 2015. My friends, we've set forth an adventure that I hope that you are ready to participate in. Here's four ways you can participate in making known the brilliance of God in the area of missions. One, pray. Pray for our missionaries. You've gotten two different sheets out there you can get at the Welcome Center. They have our missionaries. Start praying for those missionaries. Second, give. On the last Sunday of this month, we're asking that you would give above and beyond what you would normally give, that it would be your sacrifice for missions. We're asking for you to pray for that right now. We're not trying to twist anybody's arm. We're simply presenting and giving you the challenge that we want to do that. Now, some people have said, well, Steve, if we were to go over the set amount, listen, We'll give 50% away this year if you want to give sacrificially. Whatever is com committed on that Sunday is going to mission. 
And third, you can go. You can participate. We want to get us out of Akron, Ohio. Some of us want to go out of Akron, Ohio. I know some of us would like, uh, like mission trips to Florida right now or Hawaii. We haven't been able to arrange that. But New York City, Chicago, they should be pretty decent in May and July. And then finally, receive missionaries. When missionaries come, would you receive them? Open up your homes. Let me know that your home is open and we'll put somebody in your home. I started with different quotes about evangelism, but the best quote is what Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. My friends, are we making known the brilliance of God? That's our responsibility.